Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. I'm Mark Schwarzer and today I'm joined by European football expert Julian Laurence and also Phil Kitchmanides who tweeted this last week. Yesterday morning, first thing my six-year-old asked to watch was the highlights of Celta against Cadiz. Now we're happily watching Yaclano <laughs> against Rayo Vallecano in the second round of Copa del Rey. So yeah, I reckon there might be hope yet. Jules, what do you reckon about, what do you reckon actually happened in this, in this tweet? <laughs> hi Schwarze, hi Phil. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm glad at least he didn't ask to see, you know, Tottenham Hotspur's trophy cabinet or the recent trophies that they hey, won hey, or something hey. like that. At least he's hey. still very hipsters, you know? <laughs> you know, you know the thing is about that actually. When you said about wanting to see their trophy cabinet, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm look. I know back in history, there's a few trophies in that cabinet. That's not a problem. I thought he might ask actually, Dad, why are we even bothering with Spurs? <laughs> Guys, why, why, where are these two footed challenges coming in <laughs> right at the start of the podcast, man? Absolutely nailing me. Um, it's because we yeah. love you, really. All yeah, right, we okay. We like your reactions. Strange way of showing it, guys. Yeah, I mean, listen, my uh, my six-year-old is completely obsessed with uh, football and it was, uh, you know, really quite heartening, you know, when he wakes up and says, can, we watch, can I watch the highlights? What happened? Celta against Cadiz? What happened? What happened? Um, I feel like, yeah, my job is done here. My work is done. We're on the right path. So, yeah. <laughs> and Yuclano Rayo, what was that like? It was terrible. It was a terrible game, but we are Rio season ticket holders. Uh, so we, we sat down and watched it and they scraped through 2-0 and into the next round. So there we go. But you realise just because you're season ticket holders when they're playing away from home, you don't have to actually watch it. Yeah, but you know, you have to you have to experience some of the lows as well. It can't just be all the highs of, oh yeah, when we got a draw against Real Madrid and a draw against Barca and you know, this is all fun. You've got to watch them scrape in the mud against some part-timers uh, on a Tuesday <laughs> afternoon to fully, you know, be be, be a proper Raya fan. Did, so, did you recognise the, the quality of the game? Did, did you say like, oh, dad, this is not good. Really? What? Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> he no. did. He said, daddy, this is a very good. <laughs> really? It was a bit like when we were watching Fulham Man United a couple of weeks ago and uh, he said, daddy, this isn't very good. Can we, can we, can we put something else on? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so how do you, what's the secret? How, how, have you, how have you got him into it so much? Well, I guess sort of total immersion in football from uh, a very, very, very young age has basically been the trick. So, yeah, obviously, <laughs> I watch a lot of football, talk about a lot of football. We play a lot of football. So um, just as well he likes it. Indoctrination at its finest. We all love it, don't we? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's get on to Manchester United against Bournemouth. What a game, by the way. I mean, boot off, boot off at halftime at 1-0 down. And they'll obviously boot even more by whoever were left in the stadium because there weren't many fans left in the stadium. Um this result has been coming though, Julian, hasn't it, for Manchester United? Yeah, it has. However, I, did, I never thought that it could get, get this bad. And, and, and Bournemouth are one of the teams in form in the Premier League. There was this, this four, the, the fourth winner out of five. So they, they were doing well, but they'd never won at Old Trafford, for example, ever in their whole history. And for them to go, and it's not just winning, it's just humiliating United in the sense that they could have won 5-0 easily. 
it was just it was just mind blowing in the sense that you're watching the game on a Saturday, so three o'clock kickoff. So, you know, your weekend has started. There was an early kickoff game, they, so you know you get excited by the weekend and you sit down and and for all the thought that you could have on a United Bournemouth game, how could it go? You know, what could be the uh, the good things, the bad thing? Never in a million years I thought I could see that. But it shows again that one United don't have much margin this season anyway, and two, as soon as they play against a good team with a plan, with a good structure, in possession and out of possession, they are completely lost because themselves don't have a plan and don't have a structure in possession or out of possession. It was striking, wasn't it? Like the um, the contrast in the two teams in terms of an idea, uh, an, an identity, and Bournemouth are very, very clear in what they want to do, and Manchester United still aren't. They're still, we still don't really know how Ten Hag uh, wants them to play. And if you look at, I mean, the first two goals come from clear Manchester United errors, just giving the ball away. But it's not just the Manchester United errors, is it? It's the Bournemouth um, uh, pressing, harassing, chasing into space and capitalising them as well. So it was really quite um, interesting to see the, the the deep contrast between these two sides. Uh, credit to Bournemouth. We'll talk about them uh, a little bit later, I, I guess. But I mean, in terms of, in terms of United... How many times have we said on the pod this season, is this a turning point? Is this the lowest? Is It just all seems really extreme for Manchester United. And at the same time, I don't think anything's going to change. I mean, how who is going to change the manager if we're talking about a managerial change? Because the ownership situation is so up in the air that no one's there to make real decisions. Um it just feels like another one, another one of these results. And they'll just keep limping along this season. They might get something against Liverpool at the weekend, but it just doesn't feel like there'll be any continuity this season. And before that, of course, they've got the the Bayern Munich game in the Champions League. They, their season could be more or less over in terms of actually trying to achieve something or, or improve on, on last season by this time next week. It's, 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 it's really bizarre. I, I want to mention um, with Manchester United and obviously Ten Hag's selection... Um, selections for the game. I mean, playing Anthony Martial up front, I, I I don't remember a player that has struggled as often as he has, has put in so many poor performances, but every every time still gets another chance, Jules. I mean, is, is it bizarre? Like, is it just me or I'm being over harsh? Am I being overcritical and harsh? No, I mean, I like him a lot because he's one of mine, you know, he's a, he's a Paris <laughs> kid as well. I've known him since he was 15 and uh, 15 years old. He but he wouldn't... hasn't done well, has he? He's, no, he's struggled. No, but... No, you're right, Trosie. Although, look at the Everton game, which they won 3-0. And again, it's a game where they're not, they were not the best team, but they still managed to win, to go back to the, the, to the limping point that Phil just made. But Martial scored one and got a penalty for the second one. So, if you look at Holland and Holland's performances in the Premier League this season, so forget about Holland in the Champions League, which seems to be his twin brother that is much better. But, but actually, the Holland in the Premier League, with zero goals and zero assists, and some big misses at times and some games where he's completely anonymous. Martial against Everton actually gave you more than what Holland has given you all season long. So, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you in the sense that he's underachieving Martial for the talent that he has. And I think the, the attitude is a problem. The personality is a problem as much as I love him. So, for me to say that, there must be really a problem. Ten Hag has always been a fan because I think uh, a Martial in the right attitude and the right mindset with all the talent, I think is a perfect Ten Hag player because he can do everything. He's got pace. He's so good on the ball. He's a clever, he's a, he's a really clever footballer, but it's just not working. But would you rather put Holland there with the Holland that we've seen in the Premier League, which is really, really bad? Or Mars? I think he's like the least of the two worst, if that makes sense. 
but I can see why. Yeah, I can see why you would not happy. You would not be happy with Martial starting. Why a lot of United fans are not happy. I'm not sure how happier they would be with Hoyland. To be fair, the thing about Hoyland is at least I feel. I mean, I'm one of these people that also, and I'm a bit like the fans in some way. You feel like something could happen, would happen with Hoyland with the work rate, with the approach to the game. Even though at times it hasn't true. been great, right? But it's the work yeah, yeah, rate, true. the intent is there. With Martial, mm. body language, yeah. the seemingly lack of effort. I, I don't want to believe that a player goes on the pitch not wanting to try, right? I don't believe that. Mm. Sometimes players can throw their toys out of their prime. I don't think Anthony Martial does that. I think there's a serious issue with the body language, with his approach to the game um, in that sense. There's clearly, there's clearly a talented player there because every single manager that's been there... I, since Martial's been there, have always utilised him, have always yeah, yeah. gone, always given him an opportunity. So there's no doubting that. It's just that he's failed to deliver time and time again. One game against Everton is not enough for me. No, that's true. It's a bit like Paul Pogba. I mean, phenomenal talent, but in my opinion, probably he, he never, certainly in the Manchester United shirt, in my opinion, never gave 90 minutes of football at world-class level. And Martial, okay, I, I very few and far between. No, just before Phil goes in, comes in, isn't it, though, the role of a manager and a good manager to make sure that the talent that Anthony Martial clearly has, because we know he has it, makes is more consistently used by himself that the, you can change the attitude. You, I'm sure you've been with managers, and we talked about Ange the last time I was with you on the show, and uh, and how good of a man manager he was. Isn't it the role of a manager as well to, to, to I don't know, maybe sit down with Martial and, and try to change that mindset, try to change the body language, try to make him work harder, those kind of things. Isn't it a bit of Ten Hag's job as well, as well as the tactics and everything else? But it hasn't been four or five managers? No, I don't true. think four or five managers yeah, are yeah, wrong, no, that's true. right? I don't, I don't think you can blame four or five managers for a player's seemingly lack of attitude or problem with his attitude, Phil, mm -hmm. right? No, absolutely. I mean, to um, to take it to a sort of more general uh, level rather than speaking Don't sit about on the sort fence, of... give it to him, go on. <laughs> no, you know, no. Julian loves him, but be <laughs> I honest. I was, I, I, I'm going to go back to an article that I think I've quoted previously on the uh, on the podcast, but it was written and published on the first of uh, October. Uh, so we're talking about you know over two, sort of two and a half months ago in the Athletic, and the headline is Manchester United simply do not create enough chances or score enough goals, and it's a very simple headline, but it really encapsulates encapsulates where we're at, and we can talk about whether Hoyland or whether Martial should be starting. But it's it's deeper than that. I think it's deeper than these sort of individual uh, problems and, and and preferences of one striker or another. It feels structural. It feels like that whether or not your strikers take the chances is one thing, but the actual chance creation is sort of way down for United. They've only scored eighteen goals this 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 season. That's 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 low. That's low for Manchester United. It's it's half of what Liverpool have scored. And it, it, okay, there is a problem with. Um, strikers not taking their chances but I think it's it's more structural in terms of the actual chances that are created are, are not good enough quality so I mean the, the big question mark is though let, let's be honest Ten Hag's recruitment if you look at Onana Amrabat Anthony Hoyland all of them have they've shown glimpses mm. but have struggled in general have struggled so all every one of his uh, recruitment play, his players recruited specifically for him by him have struggled. And we're talking about, I mean, let's be honest, in the last couple of months, particularly Harry Maguire being one of their best players, McTominay being one of their best players, even though McTominay, I thought, was poor against Bournemouth the other day and, you know, was at fault for some of the goals. But in general, he's been one of their better players as well. 
So that is a big, big concern for Manchester United. They just seem all over the place, lacking confidence, no real leaders, which has been talked about for however many years now. It just goes on and on. But let's not let's not go away from the fact that Bournemouth, how good we're Bournemouth, and yeah. they completely deserve to win the game. And Phil, this is your opportunity. Ariola. <laughs> Listen, this was a perfect uh, example of uh, Iraola ball. And sorry, was... oh, sorry, I got the pronunciation wrong. Yeah, I knew you, you were going to keeper. correct me. You do that really well, actually, without saying to me, "No, Mark, you got that wrong." You give me the proper pronunciation. I love it. Good, yeah. Shall we? Shall we practice it together? Iraola. I think I need to do a session with you offline. I mean, okay. we could do it online. Maybe we'll be another podcast. Who knows? Areola is the French goalkeeper at West Ham. I know, I know, but I like him as well. Like I like yeah. him as well. That's why I said it. Yeah. Although, yeah, um, I'm not sure we should talk about him today. But yeah, no. let's um, let's uh, let, let's talk about Iraola and, and praise him. And he was. <clears throat> Under a bit of pressure, I think it's fair to say, and I, I, I might have tweeted when the uh, the uh, the deal confirmed for him to join Bournemouth. I tweeted something, you know, he's a fantastic manager. Enjoy him uh, after leaving Rio, and then I had loads of Bournemouth fans at the start of the season go, "He's rubbish. What are we doing? This is look at us. We can't win a game." Blah blah blah. And it turns out he just needed a bit of time to implement his very clear ideas, and and we're seeing it now. And we saw the intensity, the high pressure, and the volume. And he's all about volume. He's all about numbers. He's all about with Rio, certainly, last season, it was about loads of bodies forward, loads of passes forward, loads of balls into the box. And there's a Spanish word, which doesn't necessarily have a, a direct translation into English, and it's vertical. Literally, it's vertical. His teams go forward. They bring the ball forward. And it's not quite being direct, because direct has these connotations of lumping the ball up and long balls like that. And it's not necessarily like that. It's being on the front foot and going forward. And he is really, really a, a great proponent of that. And, and we saw that at, at Old Trafford as well. And what I was saying earlier, a, a couple of those goals came from them being on the front foot, being going forward and, and getting to those 50-50 balls. And he's a terrific young manager. Um, we knew it because we saw what he did He did with some really lowly teams in Spain, not just Rio, but before that, Mirandes in the second division took them to the Copa del Rey semi-finals. He's, he's, a, he's, he's a terrific guy with, um, with some really, really good ideas. And he's been given a little bit of um, margin here to work with because it felt like the, the pressure was on him immediately at Bournemouth and they didn't do anything silly. They believed that they got the right man and um, we saw that. We saw that the weekend. And he's making Dominic Solanke look like a very, very good player and probably fulfilling that potential that everyone probably thought he had at Chelsea. who was showing signs for when Liverpool didn't quite work out that at Bournemouth has been exceptional. Um, let's move on to Everton against Chelsea. I mean, first and foremost, you've got to say Everton. What a response. Sean Dyche, you know, not lumping the ball, playing football, Everton. We talked about, a lot of people talked about in the press, it was going to unify Everton. The 10-point deduction was going to unify the club, the players and everything else. And we're seeing it now, aren't we, Julian? Completely. Uh, three wins in a row, I think, for the first time in three years in the league. Really, and it's not just winning because sometimes we've said it many times on the show, you can win, but you don't really deserve to win. You're not playing well. They lost against United at Goodison Park. We mentioned when Anthony Martial scored, when they were the better side. They just didn't take their chances. The XG was far better than the non-XG from United on that game, for example, and they, they lost. But in those three wins, and especially on Sunday against Chelsea, they were the better team. They were really good against Newcastle. They were really good again. Sometimes you benefit from opposition's mistake. That's that's okay. Uh, but they took their chances well. And and I love the fact that Ducouré is the kind of, this not just the engine of this team, but he's been scoring. He's been the heart of what Everton has done. And, and when you have those kind of players that you can rely on, it's not just him, but Tarkovsky, Pickford, even in goal, 
Dwight McNeil has been in great form too for them. It's just, you know that the momentum is there. You know the character will be there. And we talked a little bit earlier about martial body language, et cetera, et cetera. With Everton, the character that they've showed, especially after that 10-point deduction that you mentioned, Schwarzy, is, is really remarkable. Phil, Poch in trouble? <laughs> well, he's in trouble because Chelsea are where they are in the league. I mean, I don't think he's in trouble in terms of losing his job anytime soon but you know Chelsea 12th and 14 points off a off a Champions League spot is not where they were supposed to be and the uh there's been a lot of discussion of him suggesting that they need to go back into the transfer market and people balking at this idea and thinking you know what are they talking about they spent a billion quid and you need to go back into the transfer window I think they might I think they do <laughs> I think the fact that they've spent a billion quid is okay there has been money to spend but they are wildly overpaid for some players i mean that that figure has been inflated by some really really inflated transfer um transfer fees which they've which they've paid and they've brought players in um and those players obviously aren't hundreds 150 million quid players or they're not playing like that at the moment they need a striker um the loss of christopher kunku so far has been um really telling and even more so because <clears throat> my tip at the start of the season as a player to watch out for Nicholas Jackson has has not lived up to the expectation I had from him maybe I was putting too much hope on him because of the way he finished last season with Villarreal in absolutely explosive spectacular fashion but he hasn't looked like that striker uh, this season at all someone who's quick to make decisions someone who's full of confidence someone um, who knows exactly where they need to be and he's not been that and he didn't start this game he came on and um didn't look like a striker that was gonna, that was going to score anytime soon so yeah they, they they need someone to come in in january to um, try and help them score more goals because you can't put all your hopes on Nkuku coming back because he's a young striker in a, a new division coming back from a long injury so that the, all the hopes can't be on him so yeah um it might seem ridiculous him saying uh, we need to spend a bit more money we need to bring some more players in but i think i think they do because the squad's unbalanced you know there's there's a lot of depth in certain positions and then in other positions they look a bit light but interestingly you say that about nicholas jackson right so last season he scored 12 goals for the yeah, but all of them came in like the last three months of the season or two months of the season or something but if you talk about the course of the season he scored six goals this season in 15 games, right? So so it's it's on course for what he did at Villarreal. And, and that's the point, right? So are they have they signed a player that is a team, you know, that, that, that are fourth, fifth, sixth or seventh, whatever it is in, in, in La Liga, sometimes a little bit higher, sometimes a little bit lower. So is that a type of player they've signed? That That's the big question, right? What I want to know also, Jules, is, is more importantly is about Nkunku. Is he their answer? He's more like, he's kind of like, he's not a number nine. He's a more of a wider player, in my opinion, watching him play lots of times in, in the Bundesliga. Um, is he going to be Chelsea's answer in terms of goal, delivering goals? So I think he can. It would be, I mean, the, the question mark is how long will he need to adapt to the Premier League considering he has not played yet in the league. And like Phil said, he's just coming back from a, a four-month long injury. He might need a bit of time just to get used to a new league, new culture, new team, new teammates, etc., etc. As a, as a goal scorer and like a, a good finisher, he's got that, no problem. As a lone striker, I'm not convinced. The, 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 really, the times he did really well at Leipzig was with another striker next to him, whether that was Andre Silva, Yusuf Poulsen. It was just never him and a 10 behind him in a 4-2-3-1 formation or 4-3-3, for example. Because... He's, he would not be the best at holding all the at holding up the ball, for example. This is not why he doesn't link up the play, really. He's that second striker, great second striker. He can play a bit deeper. 
can play wide, but but not, I don't think, as a lone striker in the Premier League, especially. So we will have to see how Poch uses it. The problem I have is not so much is Nkunku the answer or not. I'm sure he will do well. He's, he's a super talented kid. It's like, does even Poch has an idea how to play him, where to play him? Because right now, there's no plan. We talk, We said the same about United, but Chelsea are the same. They're just even worse. They have no plan, no structure, no idea, nothing. They're just a very intense team because they're quite young and Gallagher runs forever and Caicedo can run forever and Enzo as well. But in terms of structure and patterns of play, things like that, they have nothing. So bringing Nkunku in just like this and say, hey, Christopher, show us what you can do, it's just not going to work. So I'm... I agree with Phil in the sense Poch is not going to get sacked. They can't sack another manager again. It's already the fourth that they've had in 18 months. It's not after Tuchel, Potter, Lampard, and now Poch. So they will give him time. I'm more worried about what is Poch doing even? Like, come on, man. It's mid-December now. I was all okay at the start of the season to give him time and say, listen, we're not going to see an improvement too quickly. But we talked about Iraola with a clear idea. We talked about uh, Unai Emery the other day when I was with you, Swazi, with a clear idea. Poch has no idea at all. And we meet December now. He's been here since the end of June. I mean, come on. I think we've also seen as well this season, haven't we, with Chelsea, um, that they've struggled against teams that defend quite deep uh, against them. So against the Manchester City, that wild game um, a couple of weeks ago, and we thought, oh, we're seeing signs of Chelsea improving here. It's because they had... They had space for those um, for those young players to run into, but against a really organised uh, Everton team, they found it very difficult to break them down. They 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 struggled against Nottingham Forest. They struggled against Villa. They struggled against Bournemouth. Um, uh, against Brentford to, to to break down teams that don't offer them these kind of spaces. Um, it's it's difficult for them. And I just checked on Nicholas Jackson Swartz and I thought I had something in the back of my head. And three of those six goals came in that really weird yeah, game against Spurs. Against eleven, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, of course, but. He's still got anyway. six goals, right? So, yeah, I know what you're yeah. saying. But, yeah. Jules, interestingly about Poch, um, I want to ask you, because of him being at PSG, is it a club thing? Like a big club where there's expectations to deliver mm. silverware. Spurs was a club that, of course, they want to win silverware. The fans are crying out for it. Phil cries every week, every night to bed after a weekend's game. because <laughs> He they didn't sign anyone silverware. at Spurs. They barely signed anyone at Spurs. Well, and they went the thing, and did right? that. But, but, but let's give him credit, right? Because he, he turned a lot of those players into top, yeah. top class players. He did an incredible job. So I'm wondering, and is it unfair? I'm not sure. Is it the fact that the, the expectation, PSG was the expectation to win everything, win the Champions League even, yeah. but nowhere, nowhere near it. Chelsea, there is an expectation to deliver silverware. Maybe a little bit different now with a different ownership. Yeah. So is it a club thing? I don't know, because why is the expectation of Chelsea this season? They finished 12th last year. They were terrible all season long. Pretty much. But the fans, right? If you talk about the yeah. history of Chelsea, and, the, and the, especially when I say the history, the last 10, 15 years of what they've done and what they've uh, accomplished, right? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, um, for sure. That, the... that expectation yeah. at that club right now is to deliver almost every year a trophy. Yeah, actually, it is actually every year. But, but I think also they all know that this is the start of the new project and and it, it would take time. The problem is that we have not seen any improvement. We said that since day one of the Pochettino new era. And the issue I have with him, which we saw in Paris 100%, and I guess maybe towards the end of his time at Spurs, is the sort of in-game management. Where, remember, Phil, the, the loss against Juventus at Wembley in the Champions League with Spurs, where Juventus scored back-to-back goals, and Spurs were in co- complete control. And then he was there on the touchline, 
just frozen, not knowing what to do. Go back to the... PSG Real Madrid. Thank you, I was going to say. Mm. Unfortunately for me, we were both there in the stadium <laughs> yeah. together. And PSG, 2-0 on aggregate, cruising at halftime. Karim Benzema scores the third one in the second half. And Poch has no idea what to do, how to stop the momentum going, shifting the Real Madrid way. And in the end, we end up losing. And there's those moments where really, I mean, I'm, he's a great manager, but sometimes to me, he looks clueless on the touchline of what am I supposed to do here? My team is getting... Uh, battered, overrun, overplayed. I'm getting outsmarted by the guy next to me on the other dugout. I don't know what to do. And I saw it yesterday against Everton. I saw, uh, yes, yesterday, if you listen to the show on, on Monday, I saw it many times this season with Chelsea. And now more and more fans I can see or send me messages on social media saying, well, actually, we're seeing it too. And, and I'm just not sure what Poch is doing. So, Jules, what, what's, I want to ask you both this question. Same questions. There's two questions. Um, What's a realistic target for Chelsea this season? And who's going to last longer, Poch or Ten Hag? Phil, you go first. You first, Jules. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if I go first, I still maintain that with the players that he has. And I, and I agree with Phil that the, the squad is unbalanced. But with, and they've had loads of injuries. We have to give them that for sure. They have like 10 players out. Look at Rich James again against Everton after 25 minutes or something. So the injuries are not, are not, they're not his fault, right? They've had a lot of injuries. I, this is a team that's still good enough to finish top eight, maybe even top six. I had them six at the start of the season to finish six at the end, at the start of the season to finish six at the end of the season. They, the, the, right now, they're nowhere near as good as even a top 10 finish. So on that level, is bad. And, I would think that he would have more time than Ten Hag. So if one has to go, Ten Hag would be first. Go on, Phil. Uh, I agree with Jules. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I agree with Jules. I think I think he's going to get more time than uh, than Ten Hag. And in terms of the um, the realistic uh, where they should finish, looking at the table here, they should finish above Brentford. They should finish above Fulham. They should finish above West Ham. And then it gets to Brighton, probably Newcastle. Mm. United, well, who knows? And then you've got the top five. So um, I think, yeah, what you said at the start of the season, Jules, sixth or seventh is possibly what's looking most likely uh, at the moment, given how everyone else is playing. And let's not I... forget as well, Chosie, before you go, Chelsea don't have any European competition this season. So it's not even like we could say Poch doesn't have time to put things in place. They can't train because they play every three days. They travel, they come back. No, they are free all week to prepare <laughs> for the weekend. And the weekend, we see nothing. Yeah, I, I'm I'm actually a bit offended by you, Phil, because you said they'll finish above Fulham. And I'm telling you what, looking at their recent form, fourth, uh, sorry, 3-2 against Wolves, they won. Obviously, a very, very entertaining game against Liverpool. Um, Liverpool scored some unbelievable goals, 1-4-3. But Nottingham Forest and West Ham brushed them aside, 10 goals, zero goals against in two games. And you're saying Chelsea's going to have above them. I'm not quite so sure at this moment in time. Um but yeah, it, it's going to be a struggle for Chelsea. And I agree. At the moment, like what Jules is saying, top 10, that actually looks at a push at the moment for Chelsea, the way that they're, they're playing. So yeah, watch your space. Obviously, a lot of football still to be played. Aston Villa have got to be... Are they, are they one of the surprise teams of the season so far, Phil? Are they? Are we Not surprised? Not to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder uh, why. Uh, yeah, no. I, I, listen, <clears throat> I am a um, massive fan of uh, of Unai Emery, and I had a feeling that he was going to get things together this season. And at the start of the 
the campaign I, I tipped them to be pushing for a Champions League. I didn't think that they would realistically be be title contenders, but given the way that they're playing, given the position they're in, after 16 games, I don't think it's insane to suggest that they could be, um, if not title contenders, but they could certainly have um, uh, something to say about the, the, the title race. Unai Emery is such a good manager and I think people forget that because he couldn't pronounce the word evening uh, in English and he suddenly became this figure of fun during his time at Arsenal where he did a pretty good job uh, taking a really sort of middling squad I would say to to fifth in the table and and a, a European final did a good job there but he somehow became this figure of fun he is an elite coach Unai Emery who has won four Europa Leagues without not with the biggest teams in in, in Spain, um, go anywhere and they will tell you that he made them a better team, apart from maybe Paris. But anywhere else will say that he has elevated this team and, and without him, they were poorer. And that's what he's doing to, to Aston Villa now. And it's his insane attention to detail, his obsession. And I know all top coaches are really, really obsessed and really about the details, but not to this level. Genuinely, I've spoken to a lot of players at different clubs who have worked with Udai Emery and the level of... Uh, perfection, obsession, detail that he he has is, I, I think it's unsurpassed in the um, in the game. So he's 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 not not only is that helping him um, figure out games and plan games, but that also transmits to the players as well. So he's got this squad of players, and he hasn't brought in that many players. It's a similar squad that Stephen Gerrard had, and these players are seeing this elite coach, and he is kind of elevating them. He's making them not only better players, but also I think have. Be- bigger aspirations as well. And they're saying, we've got this elite European coach here. We can do this. And we saw it against uh, against Manchester City, the way they absolutely dominated. And, and this performance against Arsenal, it was, it, was, it was a strong performance. They rode their luck a little bit. Arsenal had some chances. They weren't clinical enough. But um, it's, an, it's another big performance. It's another home win. It's another uh, example to anyone who questioned Unai Emery, what a terrific coach he is. And yeah, they're, um, they're absolutely flying. Uh, Jules, what was the, what was the general um, sort of perception of Unai Emery at PSG because it didn't go to plan didn't go quite didn't go well for him there and now you see what he's done and how he's performed elsewhere I mean how do they feel about him right now it's a good question I mean there were some really good things like the the first leg against Barcelona of course in the Champions League that 4 nil win the second leg not so much um what happened in the second just, leg? Remind us. Can no, you just I can't remember. I can't remember. Yeah. I think I was maybe out was of the... Uh, was it 5 No, nah, I can't remember <clears> really. <throat> Let me think. It wasn't. Uh, I, wasn't <laughs> I don't think I was even on earth that day. So I can't really... <laughs> I, tell you. I was traveling somewhere. But maybe there's a case away from that 6-1 remontada defeat, of course. Was it because you wanted me to... You wanted to uh, torture me? Yes. But maybe he's, he's great in an environment where... One, he feels really valued and he feels this is his club and there's, it's maybe not a club too big with too much egos. That it. It, it feels like, listen, you don't really listen to what I'm saying. You're not really taking on board what I'm saying. Whereas Aston Villa, everybody loves him. All the players worship him, really. Uh, which was not the case in Paris, simply because they are arrogant in Paris with completely egomaniacs. And and it worked to a certain extent, but I don't think Unai really could implement all his ideas because of the dressing room that he had then, because the club was too bling-bling for him, which is not him at all. And maybe for that pressure and expectations of, you know, you have to go and win the Champions League, otherwise you're a failure. Because this is not... Unai Emery would never be defined whether he won the Champions League in Paris or not in 18 months that he was there. So 
I'm, I'm, I love the fact that he does well. I love the fact that he says right now, yeah, we are in the title race because he would lie otherwise. And I also love the fact on the back of what Phil just said that they can win against City by controlling the game and being the team that dominated the most City in the Guardiola era. Really, we've never seen City that bad. But then also grind out a result like they did against Arsenal where they were maybe not the better team on the day and yet they found a way of winning that as well four days after beating City. And if you have that kind of, of like variety almost in the way you play and what you can do, I think you are very, very good. It just goes to show you, like you said there, um, Phil, before about the fact that pretty much the same squad that Steven Gerrard had Mm-hmm. Um, and what he's doing with it. I mean, Leon Bailey's a new player who's been exceptional. Again, saw him a lot in the Bundesliga, and he was he was a real talented player and a top-class player there. But gone to another level, Ollie Watkins, another one, John McGinn, Douglas Louise, Yuri Tillemans is an interesting one as well because, you know, I think back end of his time at Leicester didn't go particularly well, but there was a lot of players that struggled um, under under Brendan Rodgers and, and Leicester that back end of the season. But he, again, is another player, and I think he was showing his true form and true colours under Unai Emery. So their biggest challenge is probably going to be at the end of the season, keeping hold of someone like Unai Emery and the likes of Ollie Watkins and and uh, Leon Bailey or so if they keep going. Uh, maybe. I mean, in terms of Unai Emery, um, I think he'd be pretty happy here. He he usually he usually lasts a couple of seasons, two or three seasons, because he's so, he is so intense that he does wear the players down a, a little bit. But I'm not sure where else he'd go. I mean, I don't, I can't see a, a big, uh, you know, Real Madrid or Barcelona wouldn't come in for him, and unless uh, Manchester United or, or Chelsea come in for him, um, there's nowhere else that he would go. So I reckon he'll stick around for for a little bit longer. And I'm interested to see if 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 they improve their away form a little bit because that has been the uh, that's been the question mark because they've been so strong at home but they haven't been picking up results away from home and there's been just a slight sort of showing that potentially um, that could change. I was uh, <clears throat> I was in North London to see them somehow beat Spurs two one uh, a couple of weeks ago in a, in a game where they they rode their luck and then came into it in the second half and and managed to win and then they got that late draw away to Bournemouth. So those are two positive results on the road. The next away game is against against Brentford. Then they got Man- Manchester United on on Boxing Day. So if they can start pick up results away from home as well as continue this sensational form at home, then they are title contenders, absolutely. And Jules, do you think they're title contenders? Yeah, of course they are. They should be. Um, it'd be interesting to see how they do in the new year. Comes February, March in Europe and in the league. And again, they've done well so far. But this was a group stage where the other teams in their group was. You know, we're decent, but nothing, nothing special. When it comes to maybe reaching the quarterfinal, etc., then, then maybe the challenge would be a bit better. And also, we talked about injuries for Chelsea. They've, we've had injuries at Spurs, for example. There's been a lot of injuries in at Newcastle. They have had no injuries at all hmm. so far, and that has been obviously to their benefit. So let's hmm. hope it stays like that because if injuries starts creeping in as well on uh, after the new year, after the, the very crazy festive period, then it might be different. But for now, of course, they are title contenders. They, they've been amazing. I'm going to say no. I'm not. I'm going to say no. How can you say no, Because it's 16 games in and they haven't got the experience nor the know-how at this moment in time. I'm going to say it's Liverpool, Arsenal, Man City to win the title. But let's talk about it again. Let's revisit it when we're 25 games in, 28 games in, and then we can start talking about who is there or thereabouts, whether or not they're genuine title contenders. Because I think at the moment it's too easy, too early to say. And certainly for a team like Aston Villa. <laughs> 
not for the teams like Liverpool, Arsenal, and Manchester City because they know but what it, it takes. They've been there, done it. It's not. It's not too early to say because you, we are, we say at the start of the season, you know, who do we think is going to win the title, and we give our predictions then. And now we're sixteen games in, and we're yeah, just judging it on said, what we've seen. What we've let, seen look, is let's um, be honest, what what do we all say? Who's going to win the league? We went for the ones well, that generally win the league. Exactly. <laughs> so they're the teams that know how to do it with the type of managers and type of players who've got the experience to do it time and time again. That's what we do, right? Ah, but generally. no one said here that Aston Villa are going to win the title. We have said they are going to contend and be battling for the title potentially at the yes, end of the season. But I still don't think they're contenders right now. Okay. Nor are Spurs. Um, certainly Man United, definitely not. That's for sure. Let's not even go there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Hey, the other thing I want to say is, it, it, thinking about, we talked about Chelsea and about whether Poch keeps his, keeps his job and they don't have a plan, they don't have a direction. And I said, Wood Villa's biggest, biggest uh, task would be possibly, or challenge is to keep hold of Emery Emery. So I'm thinking, would it be a better, like an option for him potentially? Would it be better for Chelsea to go and get someone like Unai Emery? Jules, go first, on. yeah. I mean, could yeah, you see no. that working? No, yeah, of course. But would he want to go there in the first place with a squad of, well, they still have, I think, 30 players or 29 players in the contract or something ridiculous like that. A lot to choose from. A lot to choose for. Well, I like what he did at Aston Villa. And again, going back to feeling, you know, feeling loved, feeling happy, feeling at the centre of everything. Right now, Aston Villa is Unai Emery's club. The director of football, he's his, he's his friend for 20 years. The mm -hmm. sporting director... Monchi is his friend for many, many years. There, I think there's 16 members of staff who are all Spaniards, all brought in, all brought in by Unai. I'm not saying this is a bad thing or good. I'm just saying this is this is why this is working so well because he has restructured all the footballing side of the club because the club has exactly what Chelsea trust. needs. Yeah, Sorry? yeah, true, Go but on. but you can't you can't. I mean, if Chelsea said, "Hey, Unai, bring all your structure to us." then maybe he would. But can you imagine bringing all those people from Villa to Chelsea? And and I that's why I agree with Phil. I think he's going to stay at Villa for a while, even if they might lose, a, let's say, a Pau Torres or Watkins or Douglas Ruiz there and there. But if they if they qualify for the Champions League next season, nobody's going to leave. You, and, you're not going to leave Villa without Unai Emery after finishing first, second, third or fourth or fifth because even fifth would qualify for Champions League. So I, I, think, I think what he's done is great in terms of restructuring the club, even if... They all these all these people, it's working. So this is great, and leaving that behind now to go to Chelsea and starting all over again, I'm not sure. But yeah, would Chelsea need someone like him for sure? I'm not sure right now. He would leave Villa to go to Chelsea. And if Villa do lose people in the summer, remember they've got the best sporting director in the world in Monchi to go out and find someone else. So um, it's all it's all set up pretty well for for, for Villa. To, they've got a good project and this yeah, word get banded around a lot in football, doesn't it? But this is this is like the epit epitome of a strong, exciting project. Yeah, look, I just wanted to say it. And I want Chelsea to be better than <laughs> what they're doing, right? So and I think, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan and I think he's brilliant. So look, I, actually in the grand scheme of things, for more competitiveness in the Premier League, we need managers like that to be spread across different teams and different clubs totally understand it so before Villa Vans absolutely hammer me which they will anyway <laughs> that's fine I get it but yeah look take it as a positive they're doing so well and you know Emery is so good we're going to talk about it aren't we we're going to throw some some curveballs out there um, let's go to the WSL update um, Narelle and Ash from our women's football wrap take a look at Arsenal's remarkable win over Chelsea 
Thanks, Schwartzy. Well, yes, the top of the table clash did not disappoint, did Ash Arsenal getting a huge win over Chelsea in front of a record crowd for a WSL match. Yeah, 59,000 people. How good is that to see at the Emirates? And apparently they've already sold 25,000 for the next game wow. there. So they're like flying. And the Arsenal team were flying too, weren't well, they? Did you expect that result? No, probably not that convincing. But like almost nothing went wrong for them on, on the day. They like outplayed them with their combination play. They outplayed them organisationally. They worked so hard for each other. And I tell you, it was great to see Kim Little back because she can be an absolute star for them. And she was bombing up and down the midfield. She was so impressive to watch for them coming back from injury. And, you know, I think it was just a great, great performance by Arsenal, probably less so from Chelsea. Yeah, what do you think went wrong for Chelsea then? Maybe they just got, you know, outplayed on the day. I think Emma Hayes was like completely disappointed with their performance. What did she say after? Yeah, the game? she said the only positive was that she only had a twenty minute drive to get home, <laughs> which I love. It was great, wasn't it? It was a great line. But you know, she I think she said, you know, they were outplayed in every aspect of the game, which is probably a great um, description of it. For some reason they weren't up for it. Maybe it was a little bit of a hangover after the international break, but you know, Arsenal had plenty of players away as well and I think we're I think we're really just starting to see Arsenal hit their straps. Like this is the sort of this is the sort of Arsenal we can see when they're playing, you know, top top level. Yeah, it was Chelsea's first defeat of the season. But we heard Sam Kerr post match there. She said we're Chelsea, it's fine, it's sweet. And then also we saw a video for her on social media. She was stuck in traffic and she gave the old four fingers up to Arsenal fans just to remind everyone that they've won four titles on the bounce. Mm. Do you think maybe this is almost not awoke in the beast, but do you think they'll be very hard to beat from here because they know what defeat tastes like now and they won't want that again? Maybe, yeah. Maybe Arsenal's done everyone else a disservice here. <laughs> but, like, um, you know, Sam's a very confident person and, and that she, you know, opposite to Emma Hayes, didn't show any humility and defeat, sort of reinforce that confidence, which I think you probably want in your players. But, you know, every other team, if I'm watching that as an opposition player and I see Sam react like that after a game... I'm just as motivated to go after them as they are to not experience defeat again. Another incident that we have to talk about uh, was involving Lauren James. So she stomped on a player at the World Cup and she's done something similar in this match. It wasn't as bad, but it was still pretty reckless and pretty stupid. Yeah. Do you think she'll get any repercussions from that? I don't know. It depends on what she got a yellow card from as to what the match review panel can sort of act on. So I think we'll wait and see what comes of that. But I think it'd be good for her if she did get punished again because she obviously didn't learn from that episode at the World Cup. She's, you know, not getting what she wants on the field and she chucks a tantrum. It's, it's not a good look. Chelsea and Arsenal, joint top, they've got the same amount of points, but both of them have had pretty contrasting seasons and different paths to get there. Yeah, they have. And it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. They'll have that sort of December, January break and we'll see who, you know, you don't, everyone knows you don't win the comp. Yeah, at Christmas time. You win it afterwards. Okay. So we'll see. We'll see who's top of the league come May. Yeah, well, it was a pretty exciting weekend nonetheless. Schwartz, did anyone see that one coming? Did anyone see this coming? Yes, I did. Arsenal playing at home uh, at the Emirates. 60, nearly 60,000 people. The game has been built up over the last sort of three, four weeks. Uh, 45,000 tickets were sold many weeks ago. And we're talking about just under 60,000 people turned up to watch uh, Jonas Adevel's Arsenal. They've got Beth Mead back. 
um, who's been absolutely outstanding. Obviously, back in the England setup as well. Caitlin Ford, we all know, has been absolutely brilliant. Victoria Palova has had an outstanding, um, probably the last 12 months, let's be honest. The injuries to Arsenal last season certainly helped her and elevated her to a big, big player for Arsenal. And of course, one of the, my favourite players um, in the WSL is Alessia Russo. I think she's absolutely brilliant and she scored two great goals against Chelsea. And then you look at Arsenal on the bench, Blackstinius Miedema, who is a phenomenal player, and of course, our own Cooney Cross. So yeah, I did see it coming, and I said it earlier on. Not playing Champions League football for Arsenal could be a blessing in disguise. So it's um, game on, and I think uh, it's great for the WSL because we just don't want people to run away with the league, just like with the Premier League. We want it to be as competitive as possible to the very end, like it was last season, of course. Next, we're going to talk about La Liga, of course, Phil's favourite um, subject, of course, and this is where he's in his absolute element. And and even on top of that, it's Barcelona against Girona. Phil, come on. It's your chance. Tell us what happened. <laughs> what was the score? Hashtag always watch Girona. As <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been, you know, I was trying to see the first time I actually tweeted that. And I think I did my Optus Sport column on the 7th of March this year um, using that hashtag and sort of saying how great Girona are to watch and, and what a great team. They beat Barcelona 4-2 last night away. In Barcelona. Uh, in at, Barcelona as well. Yeah, 100 kilometres down the road from Girona. It was a, a, a Catalan derby. It's the first time ever that they've won away to, to Barcelona. And they were just incredible this was a it was a sensational game uh, in terms of entertainment um Barcelona had a few chances but Girona had plenty more and I think the last 20 minutes of the first half was basically the best football I've seen any team play in La Liga this season and Girona just completely tore apart Barca in, in such a sort of stylish way in a kind of Barcelona style way the the, the the positional play the overlapping runs the creating superiority in, in really dangerous positions they everybody knew exactly what they needed to do um and they've got belief now they've got genuine belief that they can they can be anyone in this division they've only lost once all season and that was to uh, Real Madrid in a game where they had plenty of chances at the start as well. They didn't take them on that occasion, but they did last night. And we're talking about Girona, obviously, because, you know, I like to big myself up and say that I can spot trends before. But we're also talking about them because they're top of the league, Mark. They're two points clear of Real Madrid at the top of the table after 16 games. And we're talking about competitive title races and whether Aston Villa are in the title race. Are Girona in the title race? Of course they are, because... Um, They've shown that they're the best team in Spain at the moment. They are the best team in Spain at the moment. They've won more games. They've scored more goals. They're two points clear at the top of the table. They don't have European football either. They've got a squad that's more limited than their opponents. It's true. But actually, it's 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 not a bad squad. We saw some strength in depth off the bench last night. Um, Christian Stuani coming off the bench to score. He's a legendary uh, figure. And, um, Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough legend. Course, Middlesbrough yeah. legend. He's still going. And actually, I've got people in the UK messaging me going, what's going on with Girona? They've got Paolo Gatsaniga in goal. Daily Blind is playing at centre-back. Stuani's up front for them. Eric Garcia at centre-back. What's going on? And somehow this group of, I don't want to say, you know, English football rejects, but players that have been in English football and not necessarily shone, but have turned up in Catalonia under a brilliant, brilliant manager and are playing terrific football. So always watch them, guys. Always watch Girona. Jules, are you buying that? Like, are they the best team in Spain? Yeah, completely. I watched them pretty much all season, probably on the advice of Phil as well yes. in the hashtag. Yes. Um, I just I just love it. I just love how, I mean, to, to start with, the, the fitness that they're showing and how 
the way they go for the, the intensity that they put in a game. And again, it's not direct football. It's not just looping the ball. And but it's just that the intensity they play with, I think is fantastic. What Mitchell has done with those players, Tsigankov, Dovbik, uh, Jan Kuto. I mean, all of all of them. It's, it's really remarkable. The blend in that team between the experience, the youth, players who've been in that league before, players who have not never been in La Liga before and having a big impact. We talked about his, we talked about in-game management earlier with Pochettino, for example. Both Valeri and Stuani coming off the bench yesterday and scoring, which I think Xavi, with the four substitution that he made, nobody had, had that kind of impact for Barcelona. And I think it's great. They they are 41 points now with three games to go before the halfway mark of the season. So they're en route for a 50-point first half of the season, like Atletico did when they when they won the title two years ago, mm. which would be incredible. They have to play Alaves at home, then Betis away, then Atletico Madrid at home. Uh, the last two games will be on the other side of the uh, in 2024. But you can't. You, you could say they only lost to Real Madrid this season. That was three 0 and even that three 0 was a harsh with a right field. Remember, it they was, had they had chances. The XG was really decent. So, so they are they are really really phenomenal. I think. Javi, <laughs> I mean, He's what getting... excuse did he give after the game? What did he say? Was it whose fault was it? It wasn't his, of course. <laughs> are you um? Oh, oh, oh you, you, Do you not actually know what he said? He said we are in a a transition. We are a team in transition. In his third season. He came out and said we're a team in transition, which has obviously not gone down well with uh, large swathes of supporters. He also said that they played well, that they had chances. He gave the statistics of the number of shots that they created. And he didn't really seem willing to accept the idea that they were completely outplayed, um, which um, which they were for large, large parts of the game. And it's funny because uh, he was under serious pressure and they had three big games um, coming up in a row. They had a game against Porto in the Champions League, which they had to win. They did. Um, they had a game against uh, Atletico Madrid, which was billed as a must-win game to stay in the title race, which they did. And they actually played pretty well. Atleti playing terribly, terribly, terribly in the first half. And then they had this game against Girona. So of these three games, they won two, but failed really quite seismically against Girona uh, last night. And the, the pressure is still there. And not only is the pressure there because Barcelona aren't consistently playing the way that people want them to play, but just in terms of the number, they're seven points off top spot now um, with uh, with 16 games gone. And seven points is is Girona losing three games and Barca winning three games to overtake them. So um, it's, it's, it's a really, really uh, poor position. And I do not buy that they are in a transitional uh, period at all. Sorry, uh, it's difficult when you lose uh, Lionel Messi. It's difficult when you have to do the palancas to try and sign anyone. Are you not anyone? bringing okay. up Lionel Messi? So you're not bringing up Lionel Messi still, right? I mean, how long ago was that they left? <laughs> you can't say they're in transition because they've so lost Lionel Messi. What other transition are they in? I know, I know. What other transition are they in there? Okay, economically, they're in a difficult situation. Okay, it's been like that for a few years now. Just sort of get on with it, you know? Um so yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's another um, game where they've been out outplayed and haven't played um, as as the fans expect them to, and um, the pressure continues to build on on Xavi, who I don't think you know he's not going to be sacked before the end of the season. That's not going to happen. Absolutely not. Uh, he's going to stay there well, and, and watch his space. No, it's no not no, going to happen. No, 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 it's not going to happen. I, I don't think that's going to happen at all. But uh, you know, it's um, they, they're not progressing as they were supposed to. Let's put it like that. Um, will will they do? Well, sorry, I'll go back to Girona. Will they do a Leicester style run and win the league? I mean, that, I mean, we, I mean, I'm more confident about. We talked about Villa before. I'm mm. actually what I've seen from Girona as well. I'm thinking, you know what? This could potentially be a Leicester. 
Um, the the L word is is getting banded around a lot. Uh, they had the um, the sporting director of Girona on the radio this morning, and they said to him, you know, what do you think about when you hear the word Leicester? And uh, he says, oh no, you know, that's a, it sounds like a joke to me. The, the first time people said the word Leicester, it sounded like a joke, but now they're starting more and more to believe that they can do something. Um, something important this season. Uh, the first thing that Mitchell said yesterday, by the way, at his press conference is that we've got 41 points. We're safe now, which just gives you an idea of the, the mentality of, of the team at the start of the season. It was to be safe and then to try and build something um, on last season where they finished 10th. Getting European football would be um, a big achievement for them. But at the moment where they are now, they're 12 points clear of Real Sociedad, who are fifth. So they're 12 points clear. They're... they're... They're not guaranteed a Champions League spot, but they would have to collapse spectacularly to not get into the Champions League, which would be a magnificent achievement. They can do a Leicester. They can do a Leicester. And if they do a Leicester, it will be bigger than Leicester doing a Leicester uh, because the the way La Liga is structured, it is more unbalanced than the Premier League. Girona are a much smaller club compared to Real Madrid and Barcelona than Leicester are compared to Manchester United and, and Manchester City or were at the time. So... It would be bigger. It would be bigger if it happened. And it can happen. I don't necessarily think that it, it will happen. Um, I think Real Madrid are still favourites to win the title. I've been, and I'm sticking sticking to that. I said that at the start of the season, I'm sticking with it, even though they're two points off top spot. Um, but yeah, we're, um, we, we've got this storyline in La Liga, which we've needed for a while. And a couple of years ago, it was Atletico Madrid being this fairy tale. And now Atletico Madrid have sort of become this European juggernaut under Diego Simeone, reached two Champions League final, and they're no longer the plucky outsiders. There's a big three, and it's been crashed by, by Girona. So it's a terrific story. And they're doing it in such an attractive way as well, which just adds to the whole notion of you can be successful and play brilliant football at the same time. If there's one weakness that they have what is it how do you see if it's going to come unstuck how what what's going to be the, the thing that's going to get them unstuck i mean you know the the obvious thing to say is, is injuries they haven't had any major sustained injuries this season although they were missing yangel herrera uh, in midfield against uh, barcelona who's been one of their best midfielders and he, and he wasn't there and they found a way to um to play the veteran david lopez there and and, and completely dominate uh, barcelona so uh, injuries um they don't have european football obviously um and yeah, uh, I'd, I'm not going to say a loss of belief because I think belief is growing and confidence is growing and, and, and confidence in the manager's idea and how how he wants them to play. And they believe that that can be successful. Like they, they don't change that, you know, a bit like Ange with Spurs. They don't change their style against who they play. It's like, oh, we'll get away to Barca. We'll be a bit more defensive. We'll sit back. We'll invite pressure, hit them on the counter-attack. Absolutely not. And the fact that they won away to Barcelona will just reinforce all the ideas that they have. So, yeah, I, I can't see too many weaknesses at the moment. Jules, um, Phil said that he's, he said that Real Madrid he, are the favourites to win the league. He's pretty much written off Barcelona. Do you write Barcelona off as well? Or do you think it's Real Madrid's to win? I think it is Real Madrid's to win, especially when Jude Bellingham is in that kind of form. There's no doubt. I think Girona will be there all the way. And, and yeah, it would be ex extraordinary for them to go and win it. I think Atletico, who, let's not forget, have a game in hand, by the way, to still play against Sevilla will also, I think, be in the mix. And right now, you have to say the Barca is the worst team of them four. There's, no, there's just no doubt. So for them to win the league this season, they will have to improve massively in the second half of the season. We know that they probably won't be able to sign anybody in January because the money is just not there. 
So you can't even like ask for something. If you're Girona right now, you look at January transfer window and you think, okay, maybe just one, two signings with the help, obviously, of the City group, maybe a loan or two, like we see with Savio, who's one of the revelations of the season. And then you make this squad even better and to prevent potential injuries, like Phil just said. If you're Barcelona, I don't think... And Deco, I think, said it after the game yesterday. He said, we need to win games before even thinking about new signings, keeping the players that we have on loan, like Cancelo and Joao Felix. So this is not where Barca are. So I don't know how they make up the gap first and in, the, in terms of points, but also they will have to really focus on, on, on working to improve the performances of the team collectively to be able to catch up with Real Madrid, Girona and Atletico. Did Real Madrid miss an opportunity, Phil, on the weekend? They drew away at Betis. I mean, probably I think they were a bit lucky probably even to get a draw in the end. Well, Isco had a terrific chance um, right at the end, a header that came off the uh, post, and that would have been an unbelievable story if Isco had scored the winner against uh, against Real Madrid, his former club. But uh, away to Betis is a you know it's a tough place to go, and it's one of the places that feasibly at the start of the season Real Madrid might look down the fixture list and say, oh okay, we might drop some points there because it is a difficult place to go. Betis are on a long, long unbeaten streak as well. They've been one of the form teams in the division and they uh, they played well in the second half Betis Real Madrid dominated in the first half we had Modric and Cross in in midfield um rolling back rolling back the years and then Modric got subbed in the second half and wasn't particularly happy at all he's never but, happy these days is he, he well he's not he doesn't he wants to a play hate relationship with him and Ancelotti right yeah 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 him and Ancelotti are uh, are, are not getting on uh, at the moment um but yeah, um, Jude Bellingham didn't necessarily have his best game, but he scored a really excellent goal and another k- different kind of goal as well. I think I spoke a couple of weeks ago about him scoring different kinds of goals and, and he's added yet another one. We hadn't seen him breaking through the lines, breaking the offside trap, running onto a ball, controlling it down and, and finishing first time. It's, it's Again, it's a different uh, element of his, uh, of his attacking play, which we hadn't seen before. We've seen him score headers, scrappy goals from the six-yard box, um, individual runs from 35 yards out, smash the ball in from 40 yards. He can do everything. He's a complete player. And even when he's not dominating the game, he's decisive as he was against Betis. Rodrigo played really well in this game. Um, didn't score, but looked so, so dangerous. And his form is going to be really important for uh, for Real Madrid. So um, I, I think it was it was a good game. It was an attractive game to watch. And Carlo Ancelotti was happy after the game. He's like, I'm happy with the point. Um, it was a good point. They're a good team. They played well. We could have lost. We did we did all right. So yeah, um, if he's happy, then I think you know um, it's 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 fair to say that they a, a draw was was the fair result. I'm a little bit concerned about Jude Billing. I mean, he's, his form's dropped a little bit. He's only scored 12 and 14 now. So that's a little bit concerning for, for Jude Billing and his <laughs> form in Real Madrid, of course. Rubbish. <laughs> um, Phil, I want to ask you, because you're on the ground, obviously, and you've talked about in the past about how very two, two pretty much two different types of media, one from Barcelona and one from Madrid. And have the Barcelona media even started or have they even mentioned Jude Bellingham and the quality that he has? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> what, 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 what do you mean? Mentioned him. I mean, um, listen, it's it's very, very, very uh, partisan. Uh, th- th- there are news stories about Bellingham. Uh, I think I read in Sport uh, yesterday there was a factual news piece that Jude Bellingham is top of the goal scorer charts. Okay, um, but you know, do, do, <laughs> do, do not expect um, the Catalan media to start praising uh, Jude Bellingham. And if he does, then you know that he's really doing something historic. I mean, I said a few weeks ago, what he is doing is historic. No one's ever started life uh, at Real Madrid like this, and he's continuing to do it. 
if he gets the Catalan media to praise him and say he's an unbelievable player, then um, yeah, that really will be uh, particularly memorable. Do you have that as well, in uh, Jules? Do you have that in France as well? Like a, a no. real Paris central media or is it just a, a, a total similar across no, the whole country? Different. It's different, but this is quite unique to be fair. I mean, to start with, in France, we only have one only sports newspaper, daily newspaper in L'Equipe. So they cover the whole country. It's not like you have... Uh, one in Paris, one in Marseille, for example. You know, the, this it's not like like the two that you have in Madrid and the two that you have in in Barcelona. In in Italy, it's maybe it's maybe a little bit the same because you still mm. have, you know, some newspaper from Turin, like Tutto Sport, for Tutto example. Sport, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. But still, it's still not as divided as you know as Marca and and Sport and Mundo Deportivo on the other side. This is really, really like proper to Spain. Mm. Um, Phil, one other question I wanted to ask you was Lunin has kept his position in goal. Ariza Balaga has been back. He's been back fit for a couple of weeks now, but Lunin's been absolutely exceptional. Are you a little bit surprised? I'm a little bit surprised just because obviously it was a bit of a disaster when Courtois got injured. They needed to bring someone in and Ariza Balaga went straight in. And every time I've watched Lunin play, he's always done really well. Yeah, um, it's it's actually quite surprising because Carlo Ancelotti seemed to be pretty uh, clear that uh, Kepa was his first choice uh, this season with, with, with Courtois out. And when he got injured, Lunin would come back in. Uh, but he actually made the mistake in a, in a press conference a couple of weeks ago saying, yeah, Lunin's going to play the next game, but Kepa will be back for the Betis match. And all the <clears throat> vicious Madrid media jumped on this and said, how can he be doing this? It's not fair. Lunin's been playing so well. He can't say that Kepa's going to come straight back in. It's 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 out of order. And I don't know if he was influenced by the media or he took a step back, but um, Kepa did not start the game against Betis. Lunin kept his place and it's been a, um, I wouldn't say a metamorphosis, but last season when Lunin had to play uh, in a couple of games where Courtois was injured, he did not inspire a lot of confidence. I think people knew he was a good goalkeeper, but he hadn't shown it consistently at a high level, but he hadn't necessarily been given a chance to to do it. And um now he has, and he has been uh, really impressive. And to be honest, I'm not a massive fan of Kepper. I think he has certain question marks, and I didn't agree that he should be the uh, number one for uh, for Real Madrid without without any kind of question. And the questions have been asked now by Lunin. I think midweek we'll see Kepper come back in in the Champions League because it's more or less um, a game that doesn't matter. But then the real question is who's going to play uh, at the weekend uh, because um, it feels like Lunin is number one for uh, for Real Madrid at the moment. Well, that's all we've got time for. Um, I want to thank Phil and Jules for joining me this week. And of course, if you don't already do it, hashtag always watch Girona. <laughs> and of course, every game of the Premier League, La Liga and the WSL are all live on Optus Sport. See you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.